I have a friend in Liverpool that I got to know over the past few years that I was living there who would often say to me, send me a text message sometimes saying prayer doesn't work. He had quite confused ideas about prayer. I think he sort of thought of it as being like giving God a wish list and he would automatically grant it like Santa's wish list and also he was mixed up in quite a few other things. Um, So he probably thought of prayer as being some sort of magical incantation. Often we have quite confused ideas about what prayer is. If we just turn to the screen, we have Juror's picture here of the praying hands. I'm going to put up just an embarrassing picture now. Um, I won't tell you how many years ago this was taken or which one of these boys with his teddy bear is me. But when I was very young, one of my most earnest prayers was, God, make my teddy bear come to life. <laughs> well, that prayer wasn't answered with a yes. And probably just as well, because if every little boy's prayer that his teddy bear, teddy bear would come to life was granted, um, probably many a mother and father would be driven to distraction. Later on, of course, I would read in James's epistle, chapter 4, verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So sometimes the things that we can ask for can be selfish. And this is an example of that. We do need guidance in praying. In Romans, in chapter 8, we read... We do not know how we ought to pray, what we ought to, ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. We do need guidance. And so when we look at the three different readings from the lectionary today, the psalm, the reading from Genesis, and also from Luke's gospel, we see some guidance in prayer. Turn with me first to Luke chapter 11. Just to remind you, this can be found on page 142 of the Pew Bibles. Here we have the setting where Jesus is already in prayer and his disciples afterwards ask him for guidance on prayer. John the Baptist has already taught his disciples and indeed it would be common practice for many a rabbi to teach their followers how to pray, teach them a set prayer. It could be viewed that in making this request, Jesus' disciples are sort of wanting to keep up with the Joneses because John the Baptist has already taught his followers. And the prayer that Jesus teaches them is in many ways a quintessentially Jewish prayer. The late Dwight Pryor, who did a lot of work um, in Hebrew, working among Messianic Jews, often commented that if he he was in a a Hebrew congregation in a synagogue, and if he started praying, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, Yitkadesh Shimcha, Our Father in Heaven, Hallowed be your name. Tevu Malchuteka, may your kingdom come. If you started praying the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew, nobody would bat an eyelid. And similarly, Rabbi, the Rabbi Julia Neuberger, Baroness Neuberger, has commented that for her, the Lord's Prayer is a quintessentially Jewish prayer. What is interesting, though, is the structure in which Jesus organizes things. It starts off focused very much towards God and then comes down to our needs. In some ways, it has a close parallel with the Ten Commandments, where the first four commandments are directed towards God, the latter six towards our relationship with each other. You'll notice that compared to the version of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, this is a somewhat abbreviated version, but the content is still essentially the same. 
John Calvin has sort of commented that he wouldn't want to dispute with anyone whether or not these are relation to two different events or to, to the same event. I think it's more likely from the context that this is a, a different occasion where Jesus is delivering this prayer to, just to his own disciples. So let's take the, the first line. Hallowed be your name. Often I was asked by people in Sunday school, in the Sunday school class I used to teach in Christchurch Rathgar, or also by some of the young people in the youth club, where are the please and thank you in the Lord's Prayer? Normally, if you're being polite, you should say please and thank you. Well, they are there. They're not explicit. They're implicit. Flick back with me to Psalm 138. This is on page 620, sorry, 628. Uh, 627 to 628. It begins, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. The English Standard Version renders this as, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will praise you, I'll give you thanks, I will bless you. The Hebrew is atzamarecha. It's a sense of real, real praise. And Karl Barth, writing in his Church Dogmatics, comments on this. He says, we find that in Psalm 138, verse 1 onwards, and also in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, that prayer is bound up with thanksgiving and grounded in it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, just to remind you, says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, present your request to God, with thanksgiving. And so when we begin the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus says, may your name be hallowed, may your name be sanctified, looking for God's name to be blessed, this is an expression of thanks. And what about please? Well, referring to a couple of other languages might make this a little bit more obvious. How do you say please in French? S'il vous plaît or s'il te plaît. How do we say it in Irish? Moshe de Halle. If it is your will, your pleasure. Thy will be done essentially is saying please. But it's going much further than that. As I look at the three different readings from the lecture this morning, there are three different things I want to focus on. Particularly seeking God's will. Also the element of friendship involved in prayer. And this is something which, unfortunately, my friend wasn't willing to embrace. He was just looking for God to grant him a wish list. He didn't want to seek a relationship with God, yet remain hopeful. And lastly, the balance between humility and boldness in prayer. So looking first at seeking God's will in prayer. This comes out not so obviously in this, in this prayer. It says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. The following line, your will be done, is present in Matthew 6. It's not present in Luke 11, but it is implicit. It is implicit. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, writing in the first of his volumes, Jesus of Nazareth, describes how when we say your kingdom, when we refer to God's kingdom, we're referring to the dominion of God. And therefore, we are referring explicitly to God's will, seeking God's, that God's will will be done. If we're asking that God's kingdom will come, we're seeking God's will. And also look at the line, give us each day our daily bread. Now that is so rich, a whole sermon could be preached on that. We could focus on the elements like give us each day, each day, like it recalls the Israelites receiving manna in the desert on a daily basis, not storing it up. It's just needs for each day at a time. 
Kath Hemerim, each day, our daily bread. And our daily bread. John Calvin comments that it's not referring to somebody else's daily bread that we have to steal. It's bread for us. But also our daily bread, as St. Cyprian commented, not my daily bread. There's a sense of responsibility here that when we're praying for our daily bread, we're praying for each other as well. But bearing in mind that this was a prayer that Jesus prayed himself, what is Jesus' daily bread? Well, we've referenced that in one of the hymns that we've sang earlier, which recalls a line that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he's tempted in the wilderness. Man cannot live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus speaks to the disciples speaking of his food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So when we're talking about our daily bread, it goes much, much deeper. When Jesus is praying for his daily bread, he's praying for the completion of the Father's will. He's continuing to say to the Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, your will be done. Sometimes praying according to God's will isn't always straightforward. There's an analogy that I want to use to try and illustrate this, which I personally find quite helpful, and hopefully it will be to to some of you as well. The theoretical physicist and Anglican clergyman, Sir John Polkinghorne, describes how when we pray, we are seeking to present our room to manoeuvre to God. And if it's aligned with God's providential purposes, then things can happen that wouldn't otherwise necessarily happen. I have a good experience of this in my own life. Um, The particular job that I have in in Queen's this coming year is really nothing to do with me as far as I'm concerned. Um, I applied for the wrong job. I said all the wrong things in the interview, but God had a different plan. And uh, without embarrassing her too much, my my future boss Emma is here in the congregation, so she can can vouch for this as well, as I've shared that story with her. When we pray... We're seeking for our will to be aligned with God's will. And Sir John Polkinghorne uses the analogy of laser light. Laser light is powerful because all of the waves are coherent. All the crests add up together, all the troughs add down together to maximal effect. Just to explain some of the differences, normal light that we would see, light from the incandescent lights up above or fluorescent lights, light from the sun, what we perceive as white light can actually be refracted through a prism, and then dispersed into all the different colors of the spectrum. By contrast, laser light is usually more or less effectively monochromatic. So we have, like the laser pointer I'm using here at the top, um, light of about 660 nanometers, or like this one down here, sort of purple, it's about 405 nanometers. Usually it's effectively monochromatic. And this is useful to us sometimes in research. For me as a biologist, when I'm using something called a laser scanning confocal microscope, you're using individual laser lines, each of the particular frequency to excite particular molecules to look at them inside cells. Um, this is an egg chamber and a fruit fly ovary. Now, white light normally, um, light from most sources, tends to be scattered. Um, it tends to, the intensity of the light tends to decrease 
with the square of the distance away from the light source. As you can see here, it follows an inverse square law. And this is pretty obvious if we look at a torch. Um, this is a one-watt torch just shining by light. You can see how the light gets scattered over a distance of a few meters. It separates out. By contrast, with a laser light, it's very, very intense at the object it's being sh shone at. You might be able to faintly see the, the beam of the laser there. Um, I'm not shining it directly at the, at the camera, otherwise it would probably destroy it. Laser light also usually tends to be coherent like this, where the waves are adding up together. You can, nevertheless, cause laser light to uh, be incoherent, and producing diffraction patterns where the crests and the troughs cancel each other out, as you can see in the resultant wave when it's superimposed. And I'll show an example of this where I'm shining a laser beam through a diffraction grating, and you can see how there are dark areas where you have destructive interference. The waves and the troughs cancel each other out, but normally they're piling up on top of each other. How... Does a laser, is, is it legitimate to compare our relationship with God in prayer with a laser? Well, although lasers obviously aren't explicitly referred to in the Bible in any way whatsoever, nevertheless, the imagery that God is light is something that we find repeatedly in Scripture. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And similarly, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we read in verse 14, saying to the disciples, including us, you are the light of the world. Going on in verse 16, therefore let your light shine before all men, before all others. So clearly light is somehow bound up with witnessing, showing our light to other people. What about our prayer life? Again, I'll refer back to, well, both Pope Benedict's comments and also Matthew Henry, the uh, 17th century Presbyterian minister. Um, Matthew Henry, looking at various different references in Luke's gospel leading up to Luke chapter 11, points out how prayer is integral to Jesus' ministry. So beginning with Jesus' baptism, Luke chapter 3, we read, as he was praying the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Luke chapter 5, we find another reference um, that Jesus was praying. He often withdrew to, to lonely places. Luke chapter 9, we have, find yet a, yet a further reference. In fact, let me just uh, look these up to give you it exactly. So Luke chapter 5, verse, verse 16 Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. And this is the context when they're at Caesarea Philippi and Peter makes his great confession of Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he is the Christ. And then going on, the scene of the transfiguration. Again in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, about eight, eight, eight days after this, James and John, Peter, went up onto a mountain to pray. And then referring to Jesus in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. 
Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI describes how Jesus' entire ministry arises from his prayer and is sustained by it. So if our ministry, if our witness to others is meant to reflect God's light somehow, then we need to have an alignment with God's light in our prayer life as well. So I've given a little bit of a description about lasers so far. How do we have this coherence in a laser beam where all of the, the light waves are in the same phase as each other, they're in the same direction as each other, piling up on top of each other, crest to crest, trough to trough. They're of all the same wavelength as each other, the same frequency, and also the same polarization. Well, I'm not going to go into a huge bit of detail about laser physics. I am not a laser physicist myself. I'm a biologist. But I have discussed this with a, a friend who's a professor of laser physics and sort of discussing this particular analogy. And... There are a number of elements that are, I think, instructive in this. One is that there is a kind of a positive feedback involved in the generation of laser light. So you have a number of atoms that are in an excited state where there are electrons that are at higher energy levels. And normally you might have an electron, sorry, a package of light, a quantum of light, a photon being released then spontaneously. But in a laser, what happens is you have stimulated emission of this light package, a photon. And usually you have a photon incoming, excited atom releases two photons in the same direction, same polarization. One is absorbed into the incoming one as well. And then you have a chain reaction set up where this is directed towards a mirror, feeds back on other atoms that are excited within what's referred to as the gain medium. And this chain reaction goes on where they're ricocheting between two different mirrors. All these photons suddenly start building up. Let's have a look at this. So here you have a number of atoms in the excited state. You have an incoming photon, release of two photons bouncing off against a mirrored surface, bouncing off against another mirrored surface, and suddenly you have more and more photons building up as you have this positive feedback. This particular mirror here is only partially reflective, it's about 98% reflective, so it allows the built-up laser beam with all these coherent waves to pass through. In the interests of safety, I'm not going to demonstrate this laser inside the church, but instead I'm doing so in an isolated environment and wearing appropriate eye protection. Or for another example, lighting matches from a distance. So you may be wondering, how does this relate to prayer? Well, if you're confused by what's going on, that is one example. It's a lot easier to use a laser pointer um, or use this example because it's probably a little bit easier to see. It's a lot easier to use a laser pointer than it is to understand the physics of how one works. In the same way, it's actually an awful lot easier for us to pray than to truly grasp what is going on with God's activity behind the scenes. 
But there is another reason why I think laser light is instructive in considering particularly intercessory prayer. Remember how I described how when what gives rise to a laser light's intense power, the intensity of its power, the power of the intensity of the beam, is because all the crests and the waves are adding up and that all the troughs are adding down to maximal effect. So the superposed wave um, is much, much stronger and very intense. In the same way, if we have our will aligned with God's will, we can see how much there's going to be a much more positive outcome to our prayers. If, on the other hand, we're at cross-purposes with God's will, we don't really expect God to, to grant us something that isn't according to his purposes. So hopefully this will be something that's helpful in considering um, how we pray, trying to seek God's will as is emphasized in our gospel reading for this morning. Your kingdom come. We can also see this when we look at the psalm, the very last verse of Psalm 138 places trust in God's will. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. And when we look at the passage in Genesis chapter 18, here we see how Abraham is seeking God's will, but also concerned for his relative Lot and his family in Sodom. This deals with, leads me on to our, our next point. In fact, we'll just cover one more thing. So when we're praying, we'll just have a cartoon coming up on the screen. This is one, a cartoon I'm particularly fond of by Sidney Harris. Just uh, transfer across to the other computer. There we go. Um, for those who can't see it, um, the, there's a group of scientists surrounding somebody in clerical dress, pointing to some apparatus, and they're saying, this is the one, we want you to pray for this one. Now, there are things that are both scientifically and theologically naive about this situation, but I remember being in a position when I was working as an undergraduate in a lab in Trinity, um, doing a very late experiment during the night, doing bacterial growth curves. And I made a mistake, made some particular mistake during the experiment. And my immediate initial reaction was to pray, God, fix the mistake I've just done. And then I stopped. And I thought, hang on, what am I praying for? If God grants that request, then what I'm going to be seeing is a one-off extraordinary event, what we refer to as a miracle, a sign of God's activity. He's desperate to get people's attention. Um, whereas really what we're trying to do when we're doing experiments is trying to understand how God normally operates as sustainer of the natural laws in the universe, trying to observe the customs of God. So really what I don't want in that context is a miracle. I don't want it. Therefore, a conversation develops where we learn more about God's will through our prayer life. We gradually learn through prayer to align our will with God's will. And we see this also happening in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham gets close to God's will, but he doesn't get completely there. It's almost like a haggling procedure as Abraham sort of goes down in the number of estimates of the number of righteous people that have to be in Sodom before God will decide not to destroy the city, starting off with 50, going down to 10. If we read later on in chapter 19, we find that there weren't even 10 people who were righteous. But nevertheless, God did rescue Lot and 
his two daughters, and at least for a short period, his wife. So Abraham gets close, but he doesn't get completely there. Abraham, notably, though, is described both in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, and also in James's epistle, chapter 2, verse 23. He's described as being God's friend, a friend of God. We wouldn't necessarily read the encounter in Genesis chapter 18 as a prayer, but it is a prayer. Abraham's relationship with God is so intimate that it is as a two-way conversation. It's very, very clearly like that. And really, when we're trying to pray, we should be seeking that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, where we're not just telling God everything we want, but listening to him as well. Listening to how he responds in the events that unfold in our lives, listening to his word in scripture. The Bible translator and... uh, Jesuit academic Nicholas King comments, referring to Luke chapter 11, that the key to prayer is friendship. We see this particularly in the parable later on, a friendship with God. There are three friends mentioned in the the parable of the person who's woken at night. The setting for this is something to do with sort of Middle Eastern custom and also the heat of the day. So you might think it was rather inconsiderate for a friend to arrive late up and land himself on on, on another friend and look for food and accommodation late at night. But usually it was the pattern that in the heat of the day, people would seek to be traveling either in the morning or the evening when it was a bit cooler. Friends who have done the Camino to Santiago de Compostela will tell you the same thing. You're better to do your walking not in the middle of the day, but in the morning and in the evening. And that's what's taken place here. And also we have to understand the custom of hospitality in the Middle East, which still continues to this day from what I can gather. That's reflected in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham is hosting the three guests who appear. We later discover he's entertaining angels. So there are three friends represented within this parable. The friend who is presenting the request to open up, provide some food. The friend who's visiting late at night and the friend who's lying asleep and doesn't want to be woken up. And the reason for this is also because the kind of the living arrangements at the time. Usually people would have been living in one room together, one room shared. The livestock might have been brought in at night. They would have been just sort of sleeping in a two-level room, um, split level, where on the upper level there would be a stove burning all night. And the family would be all gathered together, servants all together, sleeping on sort of straw mats on on a flat raised plinth. So if one person was to get up during the middle of the night, he would effectively be waking up the whole family. And you can understand how he doesn't want this. In looking at this particular parable, it's important to bear in mind not just the similarities with our relationship with God, but also the contrasts. William Barclay comments that with the parable, you're sort of laying one thing alongside another, para alongside. And therefore, the person who doesn't want to be woken up late at night, isn't say, we're not saying that God is a grumpy person who's sleeping and has to be woken up and we have to be persistently banging on his door. It's not saying that at all. In fact, Psalm 121, if you turn to that, it says, He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So there are ways in which God clearly is not like the person who has described the friend in this parable. But nevertheless, 
Jesus is presenting this as a sort of an a fortiori argument. If that friend, because of the anadia, the Greek word, the, the sort of importunity, the impudence, the shameless arrogance, if that friend is presenting such impudence and he's still um, getting his request, how much more will our loving Father in heaven give us our requests when we're seeking his will and coming to him in prayer? So, as, as Nicholas King says, friendship is the key to prayer in this parable. And we have another a fortiori argument at the very end. And if you fathers, though you are evil, knew how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount says good things to those who ask him. But it goes further here. It's more explicit in Luke's gospel, in this context, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And lastly, I want to turn to the, the theme of boldness and humility. In Luke's gospel, we're dealing very much more with boldness in the, in the parables that are presented. In Genesis chapter 18, we've got a picture of both. If you look at verse 27... Abraham says, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, there is boldness and humility at one and the same time. We're encouraged to pray to God, but at the same time we need to recognize who God is and who we are. It is a privilege to come into God's presence in prayer. So there is a need for a balance for both boldness and humility. Psalm 138 again. If we look at verse 3, I will praise you with all of my heart. It goes on to say, when I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. So there is boldness there. But also, if you look at verse 6, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Or as the metrical version renders it that we sang at the start of the service, though God is high, yet he respects all those that lowly be, whereas the proud and lofty ones afar off knoweth he. This is also reflected, we read later on in Luke's Gospel, the parable that Jesus tells us, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The one whose God, God hears his prayers is the tax collector who dares not to even raise his face towards heaven and just says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whereas the Pharisee, on the other hand, is just saying a showy prayer and looking down on everybody else. There is a need for both boldness and humility in our prayers. Dealing again with the theme of relationship, I'm just going to tell you a short story as we finish off. Just put the picture up on the screen again. This is a portrait I painted of my grandmother when, she was, when I was about 14 years old. Uh, presented it to my grandmother as a Christmas present, not realizing at the time that my grandmother was going to live little more than a year after that. And at the time my grandmother died, her death came as quite a surprise. Um, she had uh, an undiagnosed heart condition, as we later discovered. I can remember crying out to God in bed at the time. Crying out to God as a friend seeking comfort. 
and God answering me in prayer in a way which I can only describe, it was, it's, it's essentially ineffable, but I can only describe it as being enveloped in God's love, receiving a comfort that is indescribable. I didn't share this with many of our members of the family at the time. Mum and Dad do know about it now. Um, our family was going through a lot of emotional things at the, at the time surrounding my grandmother's death. But God certainly answered me in prayer. And so I can certainly attest the truth of the word in Psalm 138. On the day that I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. So in conclusion, what we should be trying to do, I believe, based on the... is to boldly and humbly seek God's will in prayer as his friend. Boldly and humbly seek God's will in prayer as his friend. Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege you give us of approaching you in prayer, coming to you with our needs and requests. Help us when we pray to deepen our friendship with you, not just to present our requests, but also to listen to your still small voice, to be sensitive to your will and to seek your will. Forgive us when we've tried to run counter to your will and your purposes in our lives. Give us the grace to realign our lives and our prayer life with your will. And so we continue praying using the words that Jesus taught us to say as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.